Um, why don't you guys open your Bible, if you would, to the uh, book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So we're going to be looking at here today. Real briefly, we've been in a series. If you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Just going to jump right into uh, teaching here this morning. Uh, we've been in a series uh, looking at, verse by verse, the book of First Peter. And uh, really the big issue that's been going on there is how to follow Jesus faithfully in a world that is oftentimes hostile and pressuring us to not follow Jesus faithfully. So with that, we get to chapter 3. In chapter 3, Paul or the, the writer Peter actually begins to unpack for us a little bit of what it looks like to do uh, faithfulness to Jesus in the context of a variety of roles, whether it be you know as an employer or as an employee um, or within the context of marriage. So if you're a husband, what does faithfulness to Jesus look like as a husband or as a wife? And what I told you about a month and a half ago, once we got to this little moment, this passage of looking at husband and wives, I'm going to offer in a freebie that really Peter is not addressed, but I'm going to address it. It's the subject of singleness, or what the Bible uses is the phrase uh, unmarried. Someone's phone's ringing. If they want to answer that, it's all good. I'll answer it. Um, hi. Tell them we said hi. That's really awkward, so it didn't mean to embarrass you guys. So anyways, um, I'll just stop before I get emails. Um, Anyways, that being said, uh, I, I wanted to really just focus on looking at the subject of singleness and how to do that faithfully as well. Even though, like I said, Peter himself does not address this, I wanted to take some time to address it because I think there's enough content throughout the Bible that addresses it. And so if you guys uh, were with us last week, one of the things that we really try to do is trace the idea of singleness uh, or being unmarried in that status throughout the Bible and how that kind of plays into the larger theme of a good, blessed life. In other words, how to really truly follow Jesus, follow God's, God's life faithfully, even in spite of the fact of maybe not being married or having been married and having lost your spouse, being widowed or being a widower or never being married at for whatever reason within your life. These are the types of contexts and things that we wanted to really t try to take a look at. So if you guys were not here last week, I highly recommend checking out the message on our podcast or just on our website. Um, this week, what I want to do is uh, kind of close this little section up by looking at the bigger idea or really kind of asking the question of what does faithfulness or single, uh, faithful singleness, if you want to put it that way, uh, before God really say about God? So in other words, if you want to think of it this way, uh, if you've been around evangelical culture for any length of time, you've been around sermons that have been about marriage, marriage and family. What does faithful marriage and family look like to God? I don't think there's any uh, deficiency of sermons that oftentimes address that particular topic. Um, what we oftentimes don't hear are messages that identify what this faithful singleness or faithful unmarriedness look like to God. How does that play out. And what does that say about God? So if you want to think of it in another context, is everything about our lives, because we are, quote-unquote, made in the image of God, is what the Bible says, our lives say something about God. So why it's really important for us as we follow Jesus, or if you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, even as in someone that is far from God or not even interested in serving God, our lives still speak about something about God, about the nature of who God is. And what the idea of the Christian framework offers is it says that everything about your life speaks, says something. Even though you're not verbally saying something, your actions speak something about who God is. Um, now, intuitively, we know this to 
be the case. So when, say, for example, systems uh, break down, so let's say, for example, you've been to a church and the pastor or the leader of that church or the leaders in that church, they don't faithfully live according to God, meaning they might take advantage of other people in a horrible type of a context or a sense. Uh, we know instinctively something's really wrong about that. We, we resist that. We fight that, and rightly so, because that pastor or that leader is misrepresenting who God is. So we intrinsically know or believe or assume that that person is going to represent, represent God. And when they take advantage of somebody, that distorts that vision, that perspective, that picture of what God looks like. Or to put it in another context, um, a lot of times people have a hard way of understanding of who God is in the context of being a father. And if you press in a little bit deeper and you begin to ask questions why, one of the things you'll probably find out or discern at some point is that there's deep daddy wounds there. Somewhere along their past, in their history, they had deep dysfunctionality or brokenness between the individual and their their father or even in some cases their mother but the point of the matter is is that at a very fundamental level there are certain institutions or people in our lives that represent god and when they don't represent god rightly it distorts everything about our understanding of god does that make sense you guys following you guys okay so the same thing goes for marriage marriage rightly lived out or a faithful marriage says something about god but I would also add, faithful singleness also says something about God. And that's what I want to try to look at here today. So all that is just a freebie introduction. You're welcome. To try to get to the big idea, what I want to look at today is, what does faithful singleness say about who God is within our lives? So to begin with, I want to kind of start where we left off last week. So if you want, you can open up in your Bible. You don't have to open up there. I'll just read it to you. It's Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. It says this, that Jesus speaks about this people group called eunuchs. And we looked at that again last week. I'm not going to go into that teaching again. But Jesus said this in verse 12 of chapter 19, Matthew. There are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Then Jesus goes on to say this little kind of closing statement. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. That's an interesting statement because really what Jesus is saying is that, look, not everyone's going to get it. Not everyone's going to fully understand this. There's going to be a lot of people that hear it. And the proportion of those that hear it versus those that receive it, meaning they get it, they understand it, they're open to it, it's going to be different. More people will hear it. They'll just hear it like, oh, eunuchs who are made for the kingdom of God, what, what, whatever, that seems weird. I don't get it. I don't understand. And then Jesus is going to be those that are going to really get it. They're going to really fully understand. Oh, eunuchs for the kingdom of God. That makes sense. I get it. I live into that. I follow that. What I want to do is I want for us, hopefully in this time, to kind of create a context where we can receive it, where we can really all truly get it, comprehend it, grasp it, understand it. And live into it. And again, one of the things I said last week, I'll repeat it again this week, is this is not just for singles. This is not just for people that kind of fit that unmarried status, you know, right? You, when you're filling out like your taxes and you're like unmarried, right? This is, this is for everybody, everyone here, whether you are married or even uh, unmarried. The fact of the matter is all of this, we all play and we all participate in how this plays out rightly. So with that being said, I want to begin to jump in, and I mentioned last week we 
wanted to talk a little bit about before I get into the teaching in terms of the passage of Scripture that we will get at. So if you have your finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll get to that in just a moment. But before we jump into the reading of that particular passage, I want to get a little bit of a historical context of what has transpired over the past 2,000, if not even more, years. Now, I'll just go through this real briefly, real quickly. That's why I just have the bullet points up there. If I speak too long on this, then I'll go down a rabbit trail that I don't want to go down. So I want to just really kind of take a look at a little bit of a furtherance of history. So stemming from the biblical perspective that we, again, looked at last week, I want to jump in now a little bit into Jewish tradition. So, uh, for example, the idea of marriedness or having families or even singleness in the context of marriage or Jewish tradition. Now, this uh, the rabbis had all sorts of varieties of traditions. In other words, uh, there is not sort of a uniformity of Jewish thought and practice throughout all history. In fact, you can go to uh, Jews that lived in Spain or Jews that lived in Portugal or Jews that lived in Eastern Europe, and they'll have different practices and different ways of seeking to abide by the Torah. But Jewish tradition in some context, for example, according to uh, the Encyclopedia of Judaica, it said something to this, and I'll just read it to you. 18 is the age that was set by the rabbis uh, that a man was to marry. And anyone remaining unmarried after his 20th birthday was said to be cursed by God. Just pause and think about that. All right? Um, I'm maybe going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you are just like, whoa, that'd be really weird if I lived in that world? Well, that, that is a world that does exist in some cultures, in some contexts, at some places and states of life. It goes on to say, a man who, without any reason, refused to marry after he passed his 20th year was frequently compelled by, to do so by the court. So you had this pressure around you by the uh, religious and civil authorities saying, what time are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? Are you going to get married? How long are you going to prolong this process of getting married? It's regarded as a plausible reason for delaying marriage. But only for very rare instances was a man permitted to remain celibate throughout his entire life. So the idea is that if you want to go study the Bible, that's cool. That's fine. You, do, you, can, you can postpone getting married for as long as you want. That's fine, just as long as you do that. But again, that was within some elements of Jewish tradition. I want to talk a little bit about Catholic and uh, or Orthodox tradition. Now, again, this kind of marks the beginning of the church to around circa 1500. So around 1500 years, there was a very, very strong understanding and acceptance, I would even add, of singleness, what we would describe as celibacy. Um, within these uh, historic traditions, what you would find is uh, there was a makeup. So you would have priests that, for the most part, uh, were not married. Within some Orthodox traditions, you would have married but for the most part, it was especially almost ubiquitous throughout Catholic history. Priests would not marry. In fact, they would oftentimes wear a wedding ring, and that was symbolic of basically saying, I'm married to God. I'm married to God. My lifelong commitment of fidelity is to God himself. Um, the church, for 1,500 years, they had created uh, the monastic tradition. For the most part, that if you were to then go and join a tradition, you would take a vow of chastity. A vow of celibacy so that you would remain faithful to God alone. So what I'm trying to say is that within the ancient historic Christian church, there was a long history of celebrating unmarried people. So if you live in a world today that's just like you feel this pressure, again, whether it be cultural pressure, whether it be evangelicalism's pressure or pressure from mom and dad saying you got to get married, the time clock is ticking, when are you going to do this, when am I going to get grandkids, whatever, that type of pressure uh, throughout the history of the church, there was, there was a release valve that basically said you have a place within the church. 
There are ways in which you can be highly functional as a follower of Jesus and be faithful and live out your fidelity to God by way of these certain contexts. Now, along came the Reformation. If you're familiar with Martin Luther, Martin Luther was a priest within the Catholic Church living in Germany. And he began to question some of the, uh, the, the problematic uh, practices that were happening throughout the Roman Catholic Church in that particular part of the world at that time. If you're familiar with the story, he posted 95 Thesis on the doorframe of uh, Wittenberg Church. And ultimately what ends up happening is this explosion of uh, reform called the Reformation, right? But from that particular point, there was sort of this mindset that anything that was Catholic must be viewed with suspicion, or at least majority. But the point of the matter is, is one of the things that kind of got put onto that chopping block was the, the idea of celibacy. That literally was questioned and pushed ultimately out of the margins. And in its place, there was a, you know, in value. In fact, Martin Luther himself, who was, like I said, a, uh, a Catholic monk, uh, uh, priest as well, he ultimately recanted that, walked away from that, and got married to a nun. That was kind of his way of just basically, you know, saying to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, up, you know, up yours, challenge the man, right? The idea was basically to say, we're going to push back on what we felt was, was inaccurate or incorrect or a false emphasis upon uh, chastity and celibacy and uh, not a healthy view of marriage and family. And that was kind of his way of basically dealing with that. So we see that began to shape Western uh, reformed types of theologies that had this high view of marriage and family and a low view, or at least a marginalized view at best, of singleness. And that's kind of continued even, I think, in some ways on into today. However, that kind of leads us to a little bit of more of like a modern thing that is that the modern period, which is from around the 18th century, 1700s, a lot of this was shaped um, by the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment thinkers and post-Enlightenment thinkers, people like Rousseau and then even going on. He was exceptionally well-known and very popular, and his ideas gained incredible uh, popularity and traction in Western thought. In fact, today, most modern philosophers would argue that we live in a world today that was literally shaped by the thinking of Rousseau. So he, and so if you're, uh, some of the words I'll throw out here, you'll kind of be like, oh, that's where that came from. So he pushed this idea of emphasizing inner life that was characterized by the authentic self. That came from Rousseau. And his big idea was basically like, we don't need to be married. We should fight these structures. We should fight these institutive, destructive, abusive institution that should not be entered into. So a lot of this comes from this idea of expressing the authentic self or authentic self-expressiveness and the big idea of what he didn't use this word, but it would basically come up within his teachings in terms of later time, but the idea of being radically autonomous or the radical autonomous self. And I want to just pause real now and think about those two phrases, the authentic self-expressiveness, meaning you will find the fullest, most happy life by you living into your authentic self. Don't let anybody stand in the way. Don't let anybody, anything, any tradition shape you. You shape yourself. What are your deepest desires? Live into those. That's where you'll find life. That's the modern prevailing philosophy, which we live in today. That's, again, some would describe that as a radical autonomy. The autonomy meaning your individual singular self in radical. It's like radicalized. Like, it's like hyper-fundamentalism on secular steroids. 
That's the big idea. That's the world we live in today, especially, especially in California. Like California, it's kind of a seedbed for a lot of this. That kind of gets then spread throughout the entire world. You have other hot pockets like this, hot pockets, uh, hot pockets of dissemination of this. You might have like the Pacific Northwest, like Portland, New York, some of these other hot centers. But the big idea is that you get this concept of this is where this comes from, the idea of we don't need marriage. We can do what we want, how we want, when we want. And this kind of brings me to sort of this modern context. And I'm going to break it down again, kind of in generalized terms. And I promise you, I will get to the text and hopefully it will be encouraging. So you guys bear with me another like four minutes and we'll be all good. You guys doing okay? Is this boring you? Falling asleep? Sorry. I'm actually not sorry. But uh, here we go. I'm going to take a real quick look at kind of the difference between Western cultures and Eastern cultures. So Western cultures might be defined as progressive, meaning we are progressing, progressing, moving beyond this past uh, oppressive life that was given uh, and versus the Eastern cultures, which tends to be a little bit more traditional. So, for example, Western cultures, they value loyalty to the authentic self and rattle, radical autonomy. That's what Western values uh, look at. It's one of the reasons why we live within this world. It radically, one of the reasons why you might have this tremendous amount of pressure, if, especially if you come from a more traditional uh, uh, background or history, um, where you are devoted to mom and dad. You were raised up from a very young age where you are to maybe take on mom or dad's trade or uh, leaning towards uh, an educational studies, and you're going to end up leaning in that same direction. Uh, this idea, I'll, I'll never forget this. One time when I went to uh, China a few years ago, and I was visiting with some friends that lived there, and one of the things that I was asking them, um, what are some strong distinctions that you find that you won't find in China that you find in, in America? And one of them said, oh, the idea of um, asking a kid, what do you dream about? What would you like to be when you get old? What do you dream about? What, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you hope to dream about? What do you dream that you would be your, your future? They don't ask that question. And that's a form of colonization, isn't it? The very thing that Western culture likes to pride itself. We don't do this. We totally do it. But we do it in a subversive, egotistical, arrogant type of a way of like, how retrogressive is that? You know, how dare they not teach a kid to, to dream? But the point that I'd make is this, is that these are different cultures that are just part of our landscape in our world today. So again, some of the Western cultures, they oftentimes even though they value authentic self, radical autonomy, it oftentimes results in a career and or wanderlust uh, before relationships. So the idea of actually, quote-unquote, settling down before entering into your career or traveling the world or taking a bunch of selfies on an expedition, Instagram-worthy, um, that is the, the idea of postponing all of that is just not going to enter into someone's mind. Um, sexual activity prior to marriage and or commitment. This is just the normal. Why? Because the big idea is self-expressiveness. There's a loyalty to you maximizing what you can gain out of life. And therefore, as a result of that, there's a tendency to reprioritize your sexual experiences above or beyond faithful commitment to somebody else lifelong. Again, this is, again, part of the landscape. Um, versus within more of an Eastern culture or tradition, which is the idea uh, you would be more prone to avoid sexual encounters. Because if you do, you get caught, or you find yourself being talked about, then that brings shame upon you and upon your family. And that's a higher value. You don't want to bring shame upon your family. So therefore, you would avoid certain 
certain things like that, which oftentimes leads to a kind of a Freudian sense of repression and whatnot. Um, but again, within a Western culture, you might have individual needs, desires, preferences. These begin to be lived out beyond and before others. Whereas in Eastern cultures, you might have more of a tribalism where it's our way is greater than or better than your way, which in reality, you kind of find this tribalism ironically of obligation because mom and dad says that or out of tradition. I want to get married because I want to feel in love. How often do we say that? We romanticize love. Again, this comes from Rousseau. He was, he was, he was uh, part of the, the romantic tradition, that kind of value, the idea of love. But the fact eating uh, emotion that we have, you know, in that moment, um, you know, for a few hours, for a few days, for a few months, maybe even for a few years. But when that love goes away, we oftentimes find ourselves as a culture in this place of like, I'm going to get divorced. Well, why are you getting divorced? Because I'm not in love anymore. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? I'm not in love. What you really are saying is I, I, was, I fell into love and now I've fallen out of love. And what I want to suggest to you is that that's a vastly different way of identifying what love is. And I would even add a deeply anxiety-laden form of love. I mean, how, I mean, imagine, that is the world you live in. That's the love that you broker in. How anxiety-producing is that? You never know if you're in love or if you might end up at some point falling out of love. And, or worse, they may fall out of love with you. Or worse, worse, they may fall in love with somebody else, not you, and reject you. Oh, my gosh. That's incredibly anxiety-producing. That's more of a modern, progressive tradition that we find ourselves. But within Eastern culture, it's more marriage out of obligation, responsibility, commitment, procreation. Again, there was a time. Um, I know like my grandparents, who they married for a very, very long time. Their marriage was absolutely horrible. Very abusive. But someone would be like, oh, I just logged it out. Yeah. Moderns would look at that and be like, that's, that's horrible. What a hell. Why would you live in that? Why would you subject yourself to such oppressiveness. Uh, again, I'm just, I'm, I'm just putting the facts on the table. These are the different clash of traditions that we find. But what I want to suggest to you, and this is where I'm going to bring the plane down into the realm of looking at scripture here. So hopefully you guys have your Bibles ready to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What I want to suggest to you that Jesus himself is neither progressive nor traditional. Jesus is not progressive nor traditional. Jesus was not trying to adhere to a traditional value, nor was he looking for a new progressive form that would fit into either one of these. So what I want to suggest to you is that the writers of the New Testament have an entirely different vision that's cast that I really want to press into and think about and try to help us think maybe differently in this context. And I'll wrap it up with some final thoughts. So I want to read kind of a lengthy passage. I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation so it's a little bit uh, more easily readable. So uh, if you would like, you can just go ahead and listen to me as I read this. And then I want to begin to comment on it. Now, uh, a little bit of context. Paul the Apostle is writing this. He was a church planter, a pastor who's actually himself single. And he uh, was going around planting all sorts of like little communities that followed Jesus, that were faithful to Jesus, all around the ancient Roman world. And all of these communities had their own challenges and difficulties that they were facing within their own context. And one of the cities that he had written to or planted a church in was a city called Corinth. 
And there's an incredible amount of, I mean, I, a lot of uh, historians think of the city of Corinth being very similar to, say, uh, like a modern-day San Francisco. Or it was a port city, which means it had a lot of commerce and action, activity, and uh, multiculturalism going on, uh, as well as a lot of, as a result of that, a lot of sexuality, a lot of rampant sexuality. And so within that context, you had these people that were trying to be faithful to Jesus. And they had a lot of questions. How do I do that? Which I would suggest to you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you should have a lot of questions. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. No matter how bad they might sound, don't ever be afraid to ask those questions. As a pastor here, I would love to help field those questions. If you ever have questions, and you're like, how do I be faithful to Jesus, and yet my boyfriend's constantly pressuring me to have sex, what should I do? Happy to help answer that. If you have questions about anything, I'm happy to help answer that. Because the big idea is every culture is going to have its own unique set of challenges as to how to be faithful to Jesus in its own day. And this is this. I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go with this. But a lot of people believe that there's a lot of turmoil and chaos and civil unrest happening within that particular part of the world that Paul's writing to these people. It's one of the reasons why Paul would say it'd be of life. Um, and it would be challenging for you to really be able to focus on the duties as a spouse within that particular context. Again, that's what a lot of commentators believe. But the point that I want to lead to, like, we've got to do what the tradition says. Nor is he progressive saying, well, whatever it is that you want to do, live into your authentic self. Paul is neither or. He's casting a new vision. He goes on to say, verse 25, now regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married. Share it with you. I love this. I mean, there's occasions where Paul is going to say, look, this is the word of God. This is God's inspired word. Then there's going to be occasions where Paul is just saying, look, I'm Pastor Paul. Here's my pastoral input, my pastoral advice. Take it or leave it. This is one of those sections. Take it or leave it. That's what he's suggesting. He goes on to say, verse 27, if you have a wife, uh, sorry, verse 26, because of the present crisis, I think it's best to remain as you are, uh, unmarried. He says, if you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. And if you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you, are, if you do get married, it is not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, and I'm trying to spare you those problems. But let me say this. Dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Those who weep or who rejoice, or who buy things, should not be absorbed by their weeping. And the world, as we know it, will soon pass away. Verse 32, he goes on to say, And I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking about how to please him, how to please God. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married, can devote, be devoted to the Lord and the, and the, to the Lord and holy in the body and in spirit. But married woman uh, has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever you help, whatever will help you serve the Lord best. And as a few distractions uh, with as few distractions as possible. Sorry, my reading, that was horrible. I didn't have my glasses on. I should have my glasses on. But lesson learned, mental note. But the point that I want to make is this, is that Paul, in this hopefully clear, maybe unclear statement, is really kind of laying out for those that are either married or unmarried or kind of wrestling with this question, how to make sense of this 
by the pertinency of this question. Should I get married? Should I not get married? But what Paul wants his uh, writers to understand is that, if look, if you do end up getting married, that's great. If you don't get married, that's great too. Either one's fine. But just realize, if you get married, there's going to be certain responsibilities that you'll have to live into that are just part and parcel of that landscape. And if you're not married, there's other things that are going to preoccupy your life as well. So again, at this particular point, most of this might seem a little bit, you know, normal in terms of processing. But what I want to land the plane on in all of this this morning is just consider basically four things to consider to think about of asking the question, what does faithful singleness to God ultimately point out? Again, like I said, faithful marriage to one another says something about the character and nature of God. Faithful singleness also says something about the nature and the character of God. What does it say? That's what I want to look at. So I want to look at four things. Number one is that I think, first of all, faithful singleness ultimately points to the reality of God's family that's been redefined. So one of the things that we know very clearly, and this kind of gets brought up again and again, Jesus himself describes it as far as the eunuch. There are those that are made eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of God, meaning they are brought into this kingdom that God himself has established. That idea of kingdom or kingdomness gets played out in the rest of the, throughout the New Testament. So, for example, you get this incredible passage in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. I'll just read it. You can highlight it or write it down in your notes if you want later to read it. Um, I'm going to say this. Paul says this. This is God's plan. He goes on to say, both Gentiles and Jews, you can kind of uh, add into that list, both male and female, both Jews share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body. Both enjoy the promises of blessing because they belong to Jesus Christ. What basically Paul is alliterating is the fact that Jesus began something. He began a brand new family. We looked at this a little bit last week, that the big idea in the Old Testament was there were these commands and invitations to get married, to have children, to buy land, to expand that land, to expand your, uh, and to live into this in fullness. And that created oftentimes a subset of people that maybe for whatever reason did not get married, did not produce children, was not able to buy land. And so therefore they were oftentimes viewed as second class citizens, as I read, as I read within that particular passage of uh, the Encyclopedia Judaica. But the big idea that I want to make is this, is that Jesus knocks that door down, kicks the chairs of the table out and says, everybody's welcome at this table. I don't care who you are, if you're married, you got kids, you got land, or you're unmarried, or you're widowed, or you've been divorced, or something horrible has happened in your life. You are welcome to this table, no matter who you are. You all have dignity, value, and respect. This is radical throughout all time. And it's a brand new family. And this is so important, I think, for us to really understand that this idea of family, and we'll, we'll end on some, like, very practical notes on this, but the very first thing that really just kind of comes to my, my mind is that this is what the church is. The church is, is a community of people that have been called out from this world to follow Jesus. We all have various stages and uh, ways in which we live our lives and various roles that we play within the culture and community and society at large, but all of us because of our confidence in Jesus, have been given a place. Your acceptance, guys, listen to this. Your acceptance at that table is not because of your political affiliation or whether you're progressive or liberal or right-wing or conservative, whether you voted for Trump or Obama. It doesn't, all of that that might have significance in this world, it has absolutely no recognition or consideration by the heart of God. 
You should be thankful to God for that. Because the very things that create and bring tension and destruction within our world today are not the things that bring disruption in God's kingdom. God doesn't care whether or not you're vaccinated or you're unvaccinated. He doesn't care. You're still welcome. Whether or not you wear a mask or you don't wear a mask, you're still welcome. Whether you watch Fox News or you watch CNN, you're still welcome. The criteria is Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? If you are devoted to Jesus, then you're welcome at this table. This is radically different than our world that's extremely tribalistic at this very moment, if you haven't noticed. Just thought you might like to know that. Secondly, this points out the fact that our future will be revealed, that the reality, as faithful singleness begins to be lived out, it points to the future of the reality that will be revealed. Now, again, I'm not going to go into this. I looked at this a little bit last week, but Matthew chapter 22, verse 30 through 31 says this, in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Why is that so important? Because to live in this life right now with this enormous pressure that says, I've got to maximize my entire life. I've got to get married right now. If I don't get married right now, I will be missing out on everything. No, you're not. You're, honestly, you're not. Like, from the bottom of my heart, you're missing out on something that's good, but it's not comparable to the glory that will be revealed in the resurrection. So what that does, it allows us if for whatever reason you're not married in this life right now, if you don't have that type of intimacy that this life oftentimes affords, you're not without it forever. It'll allow one day will be beyond description and incomparable to that which we're even able to achieve or have or find or discover right now. It, it frees us, in other words. And if you're married... It also frees you because it basically says the amount of delight and joy that we are looking to our other's whole source of your comfort and joy and, and security. Do you realize how much pressure that is putting upon another human being? Your expectations will crush them. Their expectations are crushing you. That's slavery. That's that oppressiveness that I was talking about even earlier in some traditional cultures that might even play that out. But Jesus is the answer to that. He's the only one that can actually sustain the weight of some total of our, our, experience, our desires and our expectations. He's the only one. So the faithful signalist that's being lived out here right now points to this reality of God's future that will one day be revealed. And then thirdly, it points to the freedom that, to fully devote ourselves to God's ways. Listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 again. It says, Paul says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. Again, he plays into how uh, this uh, lives out within marriage and singleness and so on. But the point that I make that I think is fascinating is the idea of freedom. Freedom. Now, within our culture, we tend to think of freedom as the ability to be able to do whatever we want, when we want, how we want. And uh, in other words, the idea of having multiple options. Um, but have you ever noticed that really true freedom is actually, I don't think, actually found in having, you know, myriad of options? Like that feels overwhelming. All right, if you just, I'll just say one word, Cheesecake Factory, which is actually two words, right? The menu is absolutely overwhelming. All right, I'll give you another one. Uh, last night when you sat down to watch Netflix, and you're like, let's watch a movie. We do this all the time in my family. We're like, let's sit down and watch a movie. What do you want to watch? I have no idea. Let's just scroll through Netflix. What basically that means is an hour and a half will pass by, and we will watch nothing. That's literally what that means. However, if we send a post out on social media, we're like, hey, what are the movies that you guys are watching right now that are great? And then we get like, you know, a series of 10 movies back. Now, what that did is that that 
brought upon us limitations. That limitations gave us freedom. You understand that? And this is what I think Paul is saying is that faithful singleness allows us to say my devotion is not to myriad of things. Single, it's to God alone. Not to a relationship, not to trying to fulfill expectations, not to this, not to that, but to God alone. The average person, they say by these polls, by age 21, they would have spent 10,000 hours playing video games. Think about that. You guys know the 10,000 hour rule, right? That anybody who devotes faithfully 10,000 hours to anything, you basically become a master of it. A master of it. Um, The amount of energy and time that oftentimes just gets squandered and wasted. It could be utilized in formidable ways. Uh, Here's another interesting one. Two to two and a half hours a day are spent by the average human being um, on social media. Two to two and a half hours a day. Just think about that. Multiply that by the end of the week. Multiply that by the month. Multiply that by the entire year. Like that's an enormous amount of time and energy that gets spent just on activity. And again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not casting any blame or judgment or anything. I'm just, I'm part of this reality as well. But the point that I would make is just, these are things for us to consider. Here's another interesting one. Every single day, the average human being, if you have a smartphone, smart device, you have 2,600 interactions with your phone. That means pick it up, touch it, you play with it, you mess around with it, you swipe, you hit a button, whatever. 2,600. Now, if you have heavy mobile phone use, they say 5,400 times a day you spend on these devices. We are engaged in a moment of phone addictions, screen addictions. But what the gospel does is for those that are single, I think what Paul is saying is that there's this incredible freedom. I think about the person Paul himself. Again, he was single. I think of Jesus, who also himself, we said last week, was single. Imagine the amount of energy and the time that they were able to devote in the world to doing good. Paul went around planting churches. I think one of the real pandemics that we live in this moment right now is, is FOMO. If you're missing out. Like, we are absolutely terrified. I'm going to miss out. I'm going to miss out on a sexual experience. I'm going to miss out on an emotional experience. I'm going to miss out on a social experience. I'm going to miss out on something. And I need to have it now. We are constantly, if we're not there in that experience, we're on our phones thinking about someone who is in that experience, wishing we were in that experience instead of them, which then creates anxiety. FOMO, it's a great pandemic of our day. Do you realize the gospel actually frees us? From all that, to be able to say, how can I focus my energy, my time, if I am in a state of singleness, to seek God alone? What if we were to think about our time and our energy and our resources to say, what if I were to devote this to Jesus, to the church, to God in a Bible study, to start a Bible study, to go through trainings that the church offers, to help out in children's ministry, to help serve on a Sunday morning, to get involved in some way, shape, or form, to get involved in someone's home Bible study. What if we were to use the time and energy that we had to devote to some of these things? What if we were to step back and ask the question, what, what about people that are in moments of pain, crisis? What if we were to think of it in this particular way? These are things that I think are powerful motivators to help us to really rethink 
singleness. Again, like I said, you look at a guy like Paul the Apostle, who's mind-blowingly free. He's literally traveling the entire world. I mean, talk about wanderlust. He's literally going from spot to spot, not just randomly. He's not just waking up one morning, I'm going to go here, and here's where I want to do, or here's where my authentic self is going to be most expressed. Paul is basically waking up every day and saying, Spirit, Holy Spirit, where do you want to send me today? How do you want to use me today? Who are the people you want to use in my life to bless me and for me to be able to be a blessing to them? Paul's life was full of incredible experiences and moments and life, hair-raising challenges and whatnot. Uh, one person that uh, oftentimes comes to my mind, a guy by the name of Jim Elliott. I'm almost done here. Uh, some of you are familiar with him. He, around age 19, 20 or so, he began to have this deep desire in his heart. He was a single guy. He was in school. He was a student. He was uh, studying uh, just the idea of maybe going on a mission field, he ends up going to a mission field, he ends up you know, doing this mission work uh, among these uh, Indians called the Alka Indians in, uh, in South Central America. And one of the things that he ends up doing is starts this incredible work in this ministry. And if you're familiar with the gal by the name of Elizabeth Elliot, uh, you can track her stuff online. But Jim Elliot ends up dying at age 28. He's killed. There's actually a movie, I think it might even be on Netflix right now. I think it's called The End of the Spear, something like that. I don't know. You can check it out. Uh, Just type in Jim Elliott, check it out. Um, But it's absolutely phenomenal. I would highly recommend just checking it out. But what's so fascinating about him, he has a long history of his life just explaining how the singleness element of his life played into the formation of who he was, the type of person he was becoming, was directly linked to how seriously he took his call to becoming, to being single. He didn't go out searching for it. He just happened to be it. He ended up getting married. But the point of the matter is, even in the midst of his singleness, he was not constantly living with this mindset of like, man, one of these days when I get married, then I'll really do my stuff. He said, no, one of these days I'll get married. And then until then, I'm going to do the stuff that God's called me to do. Whatever that looks like. He ends up becoming his missionary. He ends up getting married, actually, this gal by the name of Elizabeth Elliot. And then he ends up dying as a missionary on the mission field at age 28. And he said, these words, because uh, at home in, in America, all these news reports were like, what a waste. What, what, a, what a misfortunate waste. This guy died at age 28. What a, what, a, what a loss of a tremendous life, had so much potential, and he dies. What That just stinks. And, and he said this that became sort of the, the hallmark statement of his life. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That triggers me because as a young Christian, I studied his life a lot just because I wanted to live my faithfulness to God well. I got married young. I was 20. So I'm not like an expert in the singleness field. But the point that I would make is this, is that I wanted to do it well. I wanted to be faithful in it. And as a married person, I still wanted to be faithful. But obviously, I got different priorities in my life right now. Now that we're, my wife and I are both empty nesters, we're like looking at the landscape of our life. How do we live into this new realm in which we find ourselves? But the point that I would make is this, is that uh, the idea of giving one's life entirely devoted to the ways of God, that's true freedom. Western freedom that says, live into your authentic self. Please listen to me. That is a black hole. That will only, ever, and always lead to anxiety and meaninglessness. And it will fail you. It is a secular dream that will end up becoming a nightmare. Jesus offers you new life and incredibly profound freedom to be all that you've been designed by God to be.
Lastly, faithful singleness points to the reality of God's faithfulness to completely satisfy us. And I finish with this little passage here. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. A lot of you guys are probably familiar with it. He says this, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live in almost nothing and with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether to be having a full stomach or being having an empty stomach. I have learned to have plenty and I've learned to have little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. This is Paul, the single man, who is seeking to say, how do I live out my singleness faithfully to God? He's able to summarize, I'm satisfied, deeply satisfied. And there's been moments I've had everything, feasts spread out before me. And there's moments I've just gone to bed night after night after night, listening to my stomach grumble. But Paul's summary of it all is like, I'm content. Another place Paul would say, look, I'm confident that none of the sufferings of this present life are worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed because I know Jesus. He satisfies. Look, we can talk about how Jesus is good, all we want. I can do the best that I can to create a compelling picture of him. I cannot get you to taste and eat. I can present it. I can chew it out to you. But at the end of the day, you have to step out and say, I want to give Jesus everything. Which means there are certain things you're going to have to let go of. Certain things you're going to have to say, this dream, this hope, this desire to be my autonomous self and to live in all of that and whatever ideas and things that the culture is constantly saying, you're entitled to this. I have to let some of this stuff die. Otherwise, it will become a noose around your neck that will destroy you. Lastly, I want to be finished with some two final thoughts and I'm done. I promise. I promise. So number one, I just want to speak to you singles, and this is just me giving some pastoral stuff. Number one, if you're single, don't settle for just anybody to satisfy the ache of loneliness right now. Don't. I promise you, there's nothing worse than being lonely in a marriage. And it happens all the time. How do you get there? You get there because in the midst of your singleness, you are aching so bad. That loneliness is so real. That meaningliness, meaninglessness is, is so acute. You want to do anything you can to curb it, to stop it, to get rid of it, to mitigate it. And so you end up settling for something that's just present, that's there. Number two, if you're married, have family, you have an incredible role in this formation as well. Invite people into your life. And if we ever become a church that's just tribal, singles hang out over here, married people and their kids hang out over here, we failed. I'm sorry, we failed. We failed. And if you've ever been to our church and you're single and you have kind of felt on the outskirts or on the margins, I'm sorry about that. No, that's not, the, that's not who we want to become. We want to be the type of people that just welcome and invite all. That there's, a, there's a common table. There's a common theme of God's welcome. Practice hospitality. That's the type of church that, in my opinion, that as we live into that, 
those in this world will look at, and they will have no other recourse than to just be, this is mind-blowing. They seem to love each other. That love must be modeling and representing something. What is that? Oh, so that's the love of God that's been represented through Jesus Christ. That's what we want people to see. I'm done.